Welcome to The Word Revealed with David Palmer and Scott Burns, where we talk about everything Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back. I'm David Palmer here with my good friend Scott Burns. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing well, David. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you, and not only with you, but also with a guest today on the podcast, and I'm happy to welcome Justin Hawkins. Welcome, Justin. Thank you. It's good to be here. Justin, can you uh, just tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised and some of your early experiences? Sure, absolutely. I was born in Pennsylvania. My family still lives there. I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, the third one has Down syndrome. Her name is Jenna. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm in the area now is to talk to a group at the University of Cincinnati Medical School about disability and Christian ethics. Um, I was homeschooled the entirety of my growing up. And then after that, I went to Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where I got a degree in political theory. And then I went to Yale Divinity School, and I got a degree in the philosophy of religion. And now I'm a PhD student at Yale studying ethics and politics. That brings me to my talk this afternoon, which will be at the University of Cincinnati Law School about the law and forgiveness. Forgiveness is a a biblical Judeo-Christian topic. Um, There's not much evidence, I think, for the existence and endorsement of forgiveness in ancient Greco-Roman thought. It seems to be one of those novel Christian uh, ethical pieces that's really worth thinking about in our society. Uh, Kind of key to the talk this afternoon will be the idea that we live in a society that doesn't have uh, well-established norms of forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation. This is true both for people who say dumb things on Twitter as well as for people who are incarcerated. We don't have ways of seeing people as other than the very worst thing they've ever done or said. So if we think that Christian forgiveness it is, is an important piece of the moral life, then it makes sense for us to think carefully about whether we can build the society in which forgiveness, atonement, and reconciliation are widespread and relatively easy that permeate our life together rather than being surprising aberrations. Uh, so you mentioned you were homeschooled. Um, was that a part of your family's expression of faith? How did you become a Christian? Yeah, the homeschooling was, I mean, everything a Christian does is expression of their faith, um, but we didn't homeschool for distinctively uh, Christian reasons. Uh, we homeschooled because the schools in the area weren't great um, and because I got bored really easily in kindergarten. Um, I, I became a Christian uh, very young. My dad is a pastor. He continues to be a pastor. Uh, his example of faith is a great one and wonderful to me, as is that of my mother. Um, unlike Augustine, I am blessed to have both parents, uh, mature and good and godly Christians. And uh, from my baptism at a young age all the way until my adulthood, I've desired to think through the world Christianly. A decisive moment for my intellectual formation was 9-11. I can't remember ever having read the news before that day, and I don't think I've missed a day of reading the news since that day. I was 12 years old, and I wanted to 
think carefully about how these sorts of things could take place because I fundamentally didn't understand them. And that was the beginning of my trajectory toward the study of religion and politics. Uh, Justin, we're looking this season and talking about the Bible in different ways and its impact on our lives. And um, so can you share just a little bit for us about your background, maybe the first Bible you ever read and how you began to be a a reader of the Bible in your own life? Yeah. Well, I suspect the first Bible I ever read was uh, King James, um, which I still admire and respect, even though it's not my daily Bible anymore. I'm grateful for it, and it continues to be the book that organizes the rest of intellectual culture culture and life for me. It's a treasure and uh, one of the great joys of intellectual life is being able to put other books in conversation with the Bible, which I've continued to enjoy and hope that to spend the rest of my life doing. Tell us about how the Bible's organized your intellectual life. Sure. I love that. Sure. Well, so I think one hurdle to get over that I had to get over in my early acquaintance with the Bible. Um, It was a very defensive posture toward the Bible because the presumption goes, if you think about the Bible too much or the Christian faith too much, it might all fall apart. Um, It's best just to cordon the Bible off from other texts that you'll read. It's a good way of ensuring that your faith and the reliability of the Bible is never called into question and challenged. Um, But it also prevents the Bible from speaking to those other texts as well. So a really influential book for me in learning how the Bible speaks to other texts was a philosophical commentary in the book of Genesis by a professor at the University of Chicago named Leon Cass. The book is called The Beginning of Wisdom. And it is, as he says, a philosophical commentary on the Bible. So you can think just for a couple of little uh, vignettes, little portraits. Um, One of the founders of Rome in Roman mythology is Aeneas, who when he flees from Troy being sacked, he brings with him his household gods, his father. Carries his his father. And his son, exactly. So it's a kind of um, agglomeration of all the things that make a Roman gentleman care for the father, for the son, and for the household gods. And you could see him as a kind of emblem of what it is to be a noble Roman Then look at what Abraham brings when he leaves his father's house, right? So he um, brings the household gods, but eventually has to get rid of them. He leaves his house, his father's house altogether, and he goes uh, in in pilgrimage and sojourn to a place he doesn't know. So there are two archetypes that in some ways you can read as antithetical to each other. Um, The life of the noble Roman is marked by imitation of Aeneas, but maybe the life of a follower of the Bible is marked by imitation of the life of Abraham, going out in search of a place that you don't in fact know. So seeing Abraham not just as a historical figure, but as a paradigm of life was one of the deliverances of this book from Leon Cass for me. And it's beginning of of a process of putting the Bible into conversation with high intellectual culture from all over the world. Tell us a little bit more about the, uh, when I think of the Aeneid and the journey. So uh, you grew up, you grew up in a Christian home. Yeah. Your dad was a pastor. I did not grow up in a Christian home. So thinking, uh, so for me, encountering the Bible was something that happened later for me. So I had, I had a, an intellectual tradition. I had uh, other texts that were 
inform organizing my intellectual culture went and then I went to the Bible and uh, I know from your story that you've delighted to hear and engage with others who have met the Bible later in life and engaged then with an with an intellectual culture that they already inherited so is uh, tell us a little bit about heroes for you along that pathway sure yeah so one hero in thinking about the Bible and intellectual culture might be the early Christian figure, Augustine. Um, Augustine lived from 354 to 430. He was uh, a North African Christian theologian and bishop. And uh, he encountered the Bible relatively late in life after what was the best education that the Roman world had to offer. When Augustine found the hermeneutical keys that Ambrose gave him, he found them as a source of and a key to unlocking the wisdom of the Bible, which continued to guide him for the rest of his life. Um, Augustine is received as a major thinker in political theory. There was a 20th century revival of political Augustinianism. And what might sometimes be lost in the various revivals of Augustine is the degree to which he is such a biblical thinker. One of his longest texts is a five-volume commentary on the Psalms. Um, And his major work, one of the major works, The City of God, is largely wrapped up in the second half as uh, running along the storyline of Scripture from creation to consummation. So City of God is pivotal work in in, uh, human literature. Uh, It's, in some ways, it's a biblical theology. Mm-hmm. What's what's the city of God about, yeah. and when when was it written? Why was it written? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the city of God. The full text is the full title is the city of God against the pagans, and that little subtitle suggests the occasion for its writing. So in 410, Rome is sacked by the Goths, this barbarian tribe who live in the Balkan regions. Um, And what's significant about this for Augustine is it's only 30 years after Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire under Emperor Theodosius. So the pagan argument is this, uh, that Rome had these pagan gods and, and they did a pretty good job of keeping Rome safe for something like a millennia. And then this Jesus fellow came along and he couldn't keep Rome safe for 30 years. So uh, it's an argument about civil religion, and the intuition by some of these pagans is the test of a true god is he keeps his city safe. And Augustine doesn't deny that key principle, but he denies the Roman pagans have understood properly which city it is that the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has uh, vowed to protect. Mm -hmm. And so then over the course of something like a thousand pages, uh, Augustine develops his argument. Um, And he divides the book into five different sections. There are two big sections, books 1 through 10 and then 11 through 22. The first is a kind of deconstructive Roman um, uh, reading of Roman culture. And the second half is a constructive project that maps these two cities, the city of God and the city of man, from their division in the fall of the bad angels all the way up to their differing end points, uh, which, of course, for Augustine is, is heaven and hell. 
of particular uh, folks like different sections. If uh, new readers want to read City of God, I would recommend them begin with the second half, which might be a little bit more familiar to them. He begins with the desires of the Roman people, and he routes those desires to their proper object. So even things like the Roman desire for glory, he doesn't say that desire is intrinsically wrong. He says that they misunderstood where they ought to look for glory. And then he routes the the desire for glory from Roma Eterna, the eternal Rome, to the glorious city of God, right? Glorious things of thee are spoken, uh, says the Psalms. So Augustine's first move in reading Roman culture is a move of affirmation, mm. of a- affirming their, their desires and their deep impulses. Famously, Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And so he believed that in some sense that the object of all of our longings is God. So the question then is, how would you route the longing of the society around you toward its proper object in God without doing something sort of sneaky like a Jesus juke, right? Well, what you what you thought you want was, you know, financial stability. What you actually wanted was God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a way that these lesser desires are wrapped up in and oriented to the desire for God rather than eliminated and abolished on our way toward uh, the desire for God. So that, I think, is one big methodological move that Augustine um, makes. And, of course, all of that is deeply scriptural. For example, he is seeing the prophets prophesy about the last day seeing the treasures of the nations brought into the city of God, right? And so the idea that the nations have some treasures, these treasures are worthy of inclusion in the city of God and will persist Mm -hmm. there eternally is not something I think that many uh, kind of uh, anti-culture cultural argument, Mm -hmm. Christian cultural arguments often make. Um, The idea there is the church has simply all the answers and the pagans have simply all the questions. And what they ought to do is come to us who really know what's going on in the world and we can solve their problems. Augustine doesn't allow even a prideful posture toward the church. Um, in a, a certain sense, we're all in this together here, right? The, the task of living rightly is a difficult one for Christians because sin is indwelling and will not finally be eradicated until the last day, and also pagans. So he's not triumphalistic in the way that I think is a common temptation for thinking right. about Christian cultural engagement, for lack of a better phrase. Justin, my first encounter with uh, Augustine was through his book, Confessions, yeah. uh, a little thinner than yeah. City of God. There he's processing his life mm-hmm. and he's admitting his own sinfulness. Talk to us about that book mm-hmm. and how that might help people uh, in their own discipleship. Yeah, that's great. So Augustine's Confessions is something of the first biography in history. Um, he's writing it in a certain way to justify his life Uh, But it's written as a prayer, and the entirety of the thing is a prayer, which is worthwhile. Uh, What would it be like if we thought that uh, Christian culture culminates in prayer rather than polemic or um, Mm -hmm. the Jeremiah or anything like that? That's worthy of thinking about for its own right. 
And you're right that Augustine is narrating his own journey from paganism into philosophical Platonism, into Christianity. It's a beautiful text. Like the City of God, it's organized around the pursuit of Augustine's love. He says, my love is my weight, and it carries me wherever I go. It's a beautiful image of just people on the highway, in the mall, in the grocery store, just driven by love. It's a beautiful way of viewing the world. What Augustine finds is that in significant ways, the Christian faith, which he once scorned as lowbrow and unimpressive, uh, is the culmination of his life's journeys. He loves the books of the Platonists, but he finds in them that they lacked one thing. They didn't know about Jesus. And so it's as the, it's, it's, it, is, it is as though Jesus is the key that the rest of this society had been looking for, and it's his task to slot that key in in the rest of it all. Rather than abolishing, denying, and rejecting all the rest of that culture, he slots Jesus in and sees it as, in some way, the key to the unraveling of all the rest of the culture's glories. So what's then sometimes overlooked is the last three books of the Confessions have a very different tone of the, re- of the book as a whole. The first 10 books are these kind of autobiographical section. And then in the last three books, he begins thinking about memory and the mind and the book of Genesis. So Augustine writes five commentaries on Genesis over the course of his life. And what I think is important about the one that comes, the mini commentary at the end of Confessions is he's beginning to try to think through the entirety of the world as a Christian. And where do you think? Where do you begin with that project? You begin at the beginning, the creation of the heavens and the earth, right? And so it's not an accident that that is where he goes after he's narrated the way that his mind has been on pilgrimage and finally found its rest in the city of God. You then begin to think about the entire world anew again, beginning with the beginning. You mentioned the second half of City of God. We've talked about the confessions. Is there is there another work that you would uh, suggest people start with besides one of those two or... Um, what would you what would you advise? Yeah, so it, it depends. Um, if folks are interested in rhetoric, um, they might begin with the De Doctrina Christiana, which is his kind of introductory textbook in how to read the Bible. Um, but I would actually suggest folks start in two places. The first is the homilies on the first epistle of John. And the second place is uh, a little uh, somewhat ob- obscure text called the Enchiridion, the Handbook on Faith, Hope, and Love. Mm. Um, the Handbook on Faith, Hope, and Love, he writes toward the end of his life, as a handbook should be. It's short, and it gives the summary of a number of important theological questions. Because Augustine changes his mind many times on many issues over the course of his life, it's sometimes difficult to pin down what views he actually thought to be his mature and final views. But the Handbook on Faith, Hope, and Love is a little compendium of exactly those kinds of answers. So if folks wanted to start with uh, with that in Augustine, that might be the key through which they begin to think about the rest of Augustine's corpus. It's an obscure text, but I think it's a, it's a really excellent one. If folks... Um, I've always found a really good practice 
for understanding the history of Christian thought to be when I'm going to church, uh, if I know in advance the passage the pastor is thinking about, I look for historical commentaries and treatments on that passage. And Augustine was a preacher. He has hundreds of sermons of uh, on the Bible over the course of his life. Um, it's not bad to think, what would Augustine say about the various passage that we're, we're looking at Sunday by Sunday at church? Um, and you can do this with John Calvin, with medievals and uh, all the rest as well. That's been a wonderful way, I think, of thinking with the whole church about the, the Bible as the Bible is particularized in my local congregation of believers to whom I've committed myself. Justin, we'll pause here uh, on this episode, and we'll look forward to continuing the conversation on our part two, and we look forward and invite you to join us as we continue the conversation with Justin on the podcast. Thank you for joining Dr. David Palmer, Senior Pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church in Cincinnati, and Scott Burns, Associate Pastor. Meet us here next time for another conversation on the Bible.